and welcome to The Great Indoors, the podcast which reveals everything you ever needed to know about interiors and explains how to make it all really work for you in your home. I'm Sophie Robinson. And I'm Kate Watson-Smythe. And now for a word from our sponsor, Geberit, Europe's leading bathroom manufacturers. Now, they've recently highlighted that while we are increasingly used to technology when it comes to our phones, using apps to turn the lights on and off, or even helping with the shopping list, cutting-edge tech has a role to play in our bathrooms too. Yes, bathroom tech is becoming smarter than ever before with integrated USB ports, which I think is some insight into just how long certain people spend in the bathroom. I mean, you know, long enough to charge a phone. Yeah, moving on. (laughs) Then there's touchless technology, which means you can turn on the tap with a wave of your hand and orientation lighting for those midnight trips to the little boys' room. But perhaps the biggest technological leap came with the smart loo, which is becoming increasingly popular in the UK as it eliminates the need for loo paper. Which I seem to remember was very scarce supply about a year ago. Quite. But it's not all that newfangled, because did you know the shower toilet was first brought to market by Swiss manufacturer Gebert in 1978? And that is now so long ago. The original model was called the Geberella, and it was a seat which transformed your existing toilet into a shower toilet. And a year later, the, wait for it, Geberito mat was released, which sounds like something from a Wallace and Gromit movie, doesn't it? <laughs> and fast forward to today, and there are three different models of the Geberit AquaClean shower toilet available. The top of the range model features heated seating and a warm air dryer, and it even has a mobile app so you can personalise your comfort settings, including the temperature, so you can have the perfect warm bum just for you. And I can't quite believe I'm actually saying this, but you can also choose different preferences for each member of your family. And I have to say, with my 10-year-old Arthur, I think that is open to a whole host of pranks. So I think we should stop there. For more Lou Lowdown, visit gabaret.co.uk. Now, in today's episode, we have an extremely special guest. He's very much in demand, and Sophie's had to travel as far as the home office next door to secure him. It's her husband, Tom. (laughs) I promise you, I'm not being lazy, but it's just that we get so many questions from listeners about how to get the best from their builder. So, as I have a tame one right here, this seemed the ideal opportunity to reveal all the inside info with someone who will tell it like it really is. Just make sure he does. We'll also explore how to make the most of the space you already have by rethinking your layout. And our style surgery is all to do with gardens and just what is the right colour for the fence. Oh, and just to say, the eagle-eared among you may notice a few small changes in the sound throughout this episode. That's because due to the ongoing pandemic, we've had to rejig our recording schedule a bit and some things got recorded in different places. But the show most definitely goes on. So let's get into the really sexy stuff first. Talk to me about floor plans, Kate. Do you know, I love a floor plan. I mean, I know that you want to be in the room and see where the light's coming from and how it flows, but... I find I can't do anything until I've looked at a floor plan. I like that kind of 
aerial view of seeing where the doors are and, and you know, how wide the hallways are. And for anybody who's not familiar with floor plans, if you look at the classic estate agent plan, then the, the thick black lines tend to be the supporting walls, which are going to be more complicated to put doors into or take down. Thin lines tend to be stud walls or walls that it's going to be easier to move or put doors in or so on. But I mean, I just, I find floor plans quite sexy. Oh, really? You're one of those people who loves pouring over it, moving things around in your mind. Do you cut out little bits of paper or do you do it all digitally with software? I'm a graph paper, black pen and a paper cutter. I can't do the digital. Yeah, I like cutting out my table and getting a bit of blue tack and sticking it here (laughs) and then moving it there. And actually, I did that in my tiny office. So we've played Tetris in our house with all the rooms and the, the latest incarnation is that I have swapped my office with the gold ceiling for what was my 17-year-old son's bedroom. And it's tiny. It's You've a, downsized, haven't I've you? I've downsized. So, oh, there goes the dog sneezing away around the room. <laughs> it's about eight foot by six foot and it's an awkward L shape. And I knew, obviously, it had to be an office, so it had to have my desk in it and it had to have an armchair in it, which we love, which didn't go anywhere else in the house. So the entire room was based around where could I put the desk where it wasn't going to freak me out with my back to the door because I can't be having that, but also where could I get the armchair so it might actually be somewhere I wanted to sit. And I spent actually quite a long time with little bits of paper moving them around and there was, in the end, only one way it could go. Well, I think it's really interesting that you start with the layout before you've even looked at a paint chart or thought about a design because in my experience you are in a minority. I think I probably am. I think you probably are. Very excitingly as you know already I'm working on this brilliant new interior design program for Channel 5 this summer which has got me back to back filming. We're doing 12 families homes up this summer for the new show. The summer's already, can I just say on the day of recording, the summer's halfway through. <laughs> We've had Midsummer's Day. So that's, well, uh, July, that's the schedule. July, August and September, we're squeezing, squeezing 12 projects. I mean, it's just telly schedules for you. But what I wanted to say is it's really interesting when we're talking to homeowners about the problems they face with their interior design scheme. And excitingly, this has nothing to do with builders. So we're not actually knocking any walls down or replacing anything. This is just fabulous interior. It's the paint, it's the wallpaper, it's the furniture. Oh, lovely. It's the look, it's helping people discover their style. But what I'm going to say is everybody starts with the style. Most people are like, oh, well, I've got this favourite cushion that could inspire a scheme or, oh, I want a modern luxe look or I'm thinking botanicals in here. And sometimes when I visit the space, I'm like man, put the paint chart down because the layout issues Mm. going on here, you can't even begin to think about what your look is until we've got this room literally working. I mean, don't get me wrong. I will have a cushion in the back of my mind or a swatch or an idea, but I love the idea of a floor plan. And I think what happens with many people, and this will be different from your TV show, because obviously you've said there are no builders. Come over here, Lucy, and listen. Come here. She's restless, isn't she? She is restless. I think she's troubled by my living room layout. She's like, maybe we should have a shift around. Well, it's because all the sofas have been pushed back. Too far. I, mean, I think we're in danger of a rug island here, but you know, that's a different layout. That's for a different show. Uh, perhaps we should get Sophie on style surgery. Help, my rug is in the middle of my sitting room and I can't bring my sofas onto it. What I was going to say, the reason I like layout is because... I think we move into houses or apartments or wherever we're going to live. And I think we're sort of conditioned to just accept the rooms are where the estate agent says they will be. So 
if that's marked as a bedroom and it's upstairs, then we sort of think, oh, bedroom, or maybe it might be spare room. And then we see that that's where the kitchen is. And we leave the kitchen there. Or the very common one seems to be when you come into a sitting room and for some reason all the telly points are very often sort of diagonally opposite the door. So it doesn't matter how you rearrange the rest of the room, the telly is always the first thing you see. And time and again, we sort of think, oh, well, that's where the telly goes. And we decorate around that or we try and make the best of a kitchen that's, you know, small and dark or not in the right place. And so I always want to say, you know, that's why I like to look at a floor plan because you can look at it really objectively and not be kind of led by the fact that that's furnished as a kitchen or that's what the windows are looking like. You can say, well, actually, that's got really good flow from the garden. So wouldn't it be better if the sitting room was there rather than the kitchen? So you kind of, you cut out the noise of existing decor and you can really objectively go, is this where I want that room? Yeah, I think that's especially useful as well when you're moving into somewhere. Interestingly, our home here, as I sort of shared before, the the kitchen is at the north end of the house. It's got the view of the parked cars on the drive. And the money shot is down the south end of the house, which is where our living room is, which actually we don't spend that much time in. It's just a place we tend to watch telly in the we evenings. We record podcasts in and it. we record podcasts <laughs> It's a very it. big room. But we end up, we spend the majority of our time as a family in the kitchen and it's the smallest, darkest, most unassuming room. So, you know, as I've shared before, our big plan is to put a whopping great big extension on the south end of the house, which will include a new kitchen with lovely glassy windows looking at the view and probably turn the, the little kitchen into a snug. Anyway... We are wobbling about whether we do this extension this autumn. We're having a wobble because Tom, my husband, who's a builder, is just pricing it all up at the moment. And the cost of materials has just skyrocketed. Well, it was slowly going up, but I think in the last six months, there's been a big acceleration. Because I've heard it was shortages. I hadn't heard so much about cost. It was Yeah, well, where there's a shortage, then there's a premium, isn't there? And I think it's been a lot to do with lockdown. I think there's three things. It's been the lockdown and the sort of factory supplies have become quite clunky. We've got lots of issues with Brexit and paperwork, which is slowing everything down and trade deals, etc. And then also, apparently, there's this huge kind of building boom going on in China and America. And they're... <laughs> Are they taking all the cement? They're, they're, pay- they're, they're paying top dollar for all the building materials. So it's extraordinary, isn't it, how lots of global influences that means... Affect that little, a little, little conservatory in Sussex. <laughs> <laughs> little old me might not be... Well, it's almost doubled the budget. I mean, that's Gosh. we're not talking a bit. We're talking a lot more money. And so Tom and I are just having the conversation of how can we shave it off? How can we bring it back in line with what we wanted to spend? And there are lots of ways we can do that. For example, he could do most of the work himself, which would be great. Um, But another thing is actually rethinking what's already here. So I said to him the other day, do you know what we probably just should have done when we moved here was taken our really large living room, south facing with views of the gardens, and turned that into a kitchen diner because it's big enough to have a kitchen diner. And knock the conservatory down completely because you don't need it. Well, we could maybe add a garden room that's more attractive than the very dated tatty PVC conservatory that there's at the moment. We mean that does need to go and we could pop something up, but it'd be a lot cheaper than putting a full-blown... I mean, we had quite an ambitious extension. So even moving what you're saying, all the kind of plumbing and electrics and gas points of a kitchen to this end of the house 
is obviously going to be cheaper yeah. than than an extension. Yeah, it's still got a cost. So I think that's the thing to think about. It's all very well switching your bedrooms around. But if you're starting to recite kitchens and bathrooms, yeah. which have plumbing and electrics and things, then yes, it's a substantial cost. But if it means, I think maybe, you know, we were guilty of it, jumping to the extension yeah. as the solution, where actually there could be another option whereby we have a, a small sitting room in the north end of the house. Like I said, we only use it in, in the, the evenings. evenings when it's dark anyway. And then when we hang out as a family, we'd be in the south end of the house. I think as well, if we put a little garden room on, there'd be enough room for sofas down here too. Well, and I think it makes such complete sense. And you're right, that point about, you know, people automatically assume that they just need a bigger kitchen. So they stick a box on the back of the house, which automatically makes the... Oh, oh, I need to let the dog out. Oh, is that what it is? Never mind my train of thought, Lucy. Hold that thought. Hold the thought. I'm holding the thought. Right, Lucy has now left the building and is running around the garden barking at an imaginary squirrel. <laughs> so for any background noise, that's what that is. It's now, the country Adele. So I was going to make the point that I think we, we often fall into this trap, don't we, of just thinking we haven't got enough space and the most affordable and sort of classic thing to do is stick a box on the back of the house to give ourselves more space but that then makes the sort of what then becomes the middle of the house darker especially if you're in a terrace house yeah so that of which I am and that's a real problem and it's about using the space more successfully and you don't necessarily want a huge sort of guard I'm thinking of my house rather than yours you know you steal garden to stick a box on the back of the house and then your kitchen becomes dark and you want to be in that even less so should you move the kitchen around and the other classic I think is when it comes to ensuite bathrooms or bedrooms so I see time and again and this is the conditioning you know we still talk about the master bedroom. I mean, don't even get me started on whether that should be the mistress bedroom, the master bedroom, or just the biggest bedroom. But (laughs) what we find is that parents automatically think, well, we will have the so-called master bedroom because we're the biggest people, we're the grown-ups. And the children go into the smaller rooms. And actually, children, particularly young ones, have the biggest toys that take up the most space. And parents tend to only go into their room after dinner to sleep. And if the kids are really small, they're not even having a lion. They're back out of there at six (laughs) o'clock in the morning. So there's this huge amount of space which is not being used. And actually, in our last house... We went and slept in the eaves in a small bedroom and the boys shared what was, again, called the master bedroom and they had bunk beds and they had room for all their big toys. And, of course, as children grow, the toys get smaller and more screen-based, but that's, again, another story. So I'm sort of thinking, you know, don't, as parents, necessarily default to taking the biggest bedroom for yourself. You might be better having a smaller bedroom and putting children in the big bedroom. Or the other thing is... People then take a bedroom and try and squeeze a tiny ensuite into it. And we've spoken before about how much space you actually need to cram in a small bathroom. But sometimes if you've got a big bedroom, why not make the bedroom as in the bit where you sleep the smaller bit and give yourself a bigger and therefore more Mm. luxurious feeling bathroom? Mm. Because that's the bit that's going to feel hotel Mm. and you only need a, you know, quite a tight space actually for your bed and your bedside table. And actually a a cosy bedroom has a nicer feel than a big bath one. I mean, that again, Kate, that's the exact scenario we've got here. You've got this ludicrously large 
bedroom. It's big, yeah. I mean, you could roll a disco around it. It's huge. <laughs> and then the tiniest ensuite. And Tom and I are literally on top of one another if we happen to be brushing our teeth at the same time. And actually, I got so cross with it, I now just use the bathroom at the far end of the house. Yeah. And I've put all my toiletries down there because we're just literally on top of one another every morning or in the evening and it just makes us grumpy. And then into our huge bedroom. So again, as part of our remodel that we're hoping to do in the August, it's tackling that too. And I think... This is all interesting stuff because what we're essentially saying is think about how you use the rooms, when you use them and what you're doing in there, and then question whether this is the right space for that purpose. So, for example, for me, the biggest room in the house, the lightest, the sunniest with the best views, we only ever watch it, use it past eight o'clock after Arthur's gone yeah. to bed to watch some telly. The kitchen, as a, as a family, we're there for breakfast. We're there all evening. Arthur does his homework in there. I'm cooking. When friends come around for some reason, everybody wants to sit in the kitchen. Everybody <laughs> comes down here. Yeah. Uh, but we just assumed, like, that classic thing, moved in, kitchen here, bam, we'll just get on with it and do the extension later down the road. And I think, you know, it might feel like it's very expensive to move a kitchen or move a bathroom or install an ensuite, but as you've just demonstrated, the cost of that against the cost of building an extension, which it turns out you might not actually need if you spend your money cleverly rearranging rooms for how you live rather than just assuming you need more space because you think the space is in the wrong place. And I think at this time when building materials are at a premium, labour, trying to find a builder right now is really, really, really hard. And I talked to someone the other day who said, God, I couldn't, I actually couldn't take on the stress of having builders in my house right now with everything that's gone in the last year. I think maybe if you have squirrelled away a little pot of money to improve your home, think about the layout, the interior design, get some fitted storage, like you say, get a lovely big bathroom and you can transform the way you feel about your home that way. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I think it's so interesting looking at layout first and hopefully more of you will join me on my love for the floor plan. So don't send us your floor plans, however much I love them, although you could send them over to our fabulous Facebook group, The Great Indoors Podcast, if you've got any questions. And I'm sure the really engaged community over there will help you replan your spaces. And otherwise, of course, follow us on Instagram if you don't already. I'm Mad About The House and she's Sophie Robinson Interiors. my husband but he's also a master builder and how clever am I to snatch myself up a husband who can also build my house I mean I am feeling very very smug but it's time to share because living with Tom obviously gives me a huge insight into industry and the projects that he works on and the challenges that people face when it comes to doing renovations or building work or extensions 
Now, Tom's been a builder for 25 years, did his first ever renovation when he was a student at Cardiff University, uh, and then ran the very successful Art Builders, which was a residential building business for 10 years based in Brighton. And well, what can I say? He's fond of all knowledge, and I think we should bring him into the show. Hello, darling. Hello, darling. (laughs) Good morning, Tom, Mr. Pike. Good morning. I do love being given the title Master Builder. (laughs) I was going to ask that question, actually, what qualifies? you to be a master builder because it is a phrase isn't it I think it dates back to the middle ages yeah I imagine you became a master carpenter or master builder if you did an apprenticeship and you went through maybe even various qualifications I didn't actually do an apprenticeship I bought my first house when I was about 21 while I was at drama school funnily enough and I always wanted to do up a house and I started reading books and this is before YouTube, wasn't it? He actually wrote yeah, yeah. manual. Oh, I, I just got all the, all, the, all the books I could. But then basically I'd go and watch building sites and then I'd say to a roofer when he was coming off the building site, do you want to come and help me do my roof? But the uh, deal is that you teach me as we do it. Well, I'm going straight in with the most important question of that everybody wants to know. Should you make the builder tea? Um... I can only say what I do when people come to my house. I make any trades that might be here tea. I make anyone tea and coffee as much as I possibly can because I like doing that. And you appreciate it when someone makes it for you, I guess. And and I do, yeah. But if the builders are going to be there for weeks and months, then perhaps I think the nice thing to do would be to set them up with some facilities or make sure that they've got their own facilities. What are you? You're uh, milk and no sugar, aren't you? (laughs) I'm oat milk and no sugar, just uh, in case I come around to your house. I'm one of those sort of organic Brighton builders. Oh, right. Yeah, I eat hummus and crudités and things like that. (laughs) One of the first questions I think people might want to know is what actually adds value when you're doing a renovation? Because I think we all sort of think that unless you're adding more space or an extra room, it's all a bit pointless. Is that true? Is it basically square footage adds value. I got asked this a lot when I was running Arc Builders. A lot of kitchen extensions and a lot of loft conversions. And I suppose the basic answer is if you're doing a loft conversion and you're adding a bedroom or two bedrooms, then you're going to get your money back or most of your money back. You might even make a bit of money when you sell the house because houses are often priced per bedroom. So if you add a bedroom, you add 50 to 70,000 at a guess. Obviously, it depends on the area and such as so on and so forth. When it comes to kitchens and kitchen extensions, I had to always be honest with people and say, you have to do this as a lifestyle choice, not to make money out of it. You will not get your money back in the vast majority of cases. You might get a bit of your money back. If you're very lucky, you might get half your money back. But generally, you're doing it as a lifestyle choice rather than as an investment. So what you're saying is a big kitchen isn't going to make your house worth more, even though that might be the kind of tempting icing on the cake that secures the sale. It will make your house worth a bit more. And it makes your house more saleable because it'd be a nicer house. You might get an extra 10 grand, 15 grand, if you're lucky, an extra 20 grand, but you're not going to get your 40 to 60 back. 
I can hear sort of crestfallen faces all across the land because I think we all assume that adding space to your kitchen is a no-brainer. And that's really interesting to hear that it's a lifestyle choice. And also you mentioned the cost. I mean, that's quite an expensive addition. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) People often ask me, they, they go, oh, I'm going to do an extension. How much should I budget? And I'm like, I haven't got a clue because I don't know what you're about to do. You know, it's like, I, I love architects. They do a great job and everything like that. But I think they can sometimes and often be quite misleading to clients by saying the price of this will be X amount based on a price per square meter. One thing I feel that architects need to keep more up to date with the cost of building work, because I even heard of an architect just the other day that was still telling people that building work's done for £1,500 a square metre. Firstly, on small extensions, that hasn't been the case for many, many years. Secondly, the price of building work has gone up enormously Both labour costs have gone up because there's quite a lot of labour that's been leaving the country, you know, skilled labour. So that's put the price of labour up. And then the cost of materials has absolutely rocketed in the last three, six months and a year. I think architects really need to be aware of this because a lot of work gets designed and then never built based on the fact that people aren't given realistic prices to begin with. So to help our listeners who might be planning their kitchen extension, their loft conversion, or indeed adding a bedroom or whatever, in terms of the process, it's up to you to go back to the client and with the architect, because I mean, we've done this on projects we've worked and gone, okay, so the architect's designed this, it looks lovely. This is actually what our budget is. And then the architect can then work with you to bring it back into budget. And there seems to be a bit of toing and froing. Yeah. Goes on. Yeah, no, I mean so again it depends on the what what the build is. There's um some builds that you can sort of lop off big sections of it. And if you really need to reduce the budget, you really need to get rid of some very big chunks of work. So uh again, you can't just go, "Oh, how about if we do the painting or why don't we get a cheaper kitchen or whatever." You know, usually In the circumstances I'm talking about, people are talking about, you know, knocking off a third of the cost or or something like that. So you've got to take a chunk of the building away, basically, normally in those circumstances. So while we're on the subject of saving money, it seems to be something that everybody's thinking about doing at the moment. What about the argument that you project manage your own build? So you call in the trades yourself, you manage the budget, you manage the build. We see this done on Grand Designs a lot because it makes brilliant telly because you watch people have a complete nervous breakdown with the stress of it all. But I'm just wondering from your point of view, are there substantial savings to be made by not having a general builder and trying to project manage the build yourself? My thoughts are basically, who are you and what are your skills and what's your knowledge about building work? If someone doesn't have skills in project managing and doesn't know the process of building, then I would really not advise that they try and project manage their own build. I've had some friends who have decided to do that and they were carpenters or electricians. So they even had quite a reasonable knowledge of the process of building. And yet, they said to me at the end of it that they would have saved more money by just getting a firm in because they got some quotes before they decided to project manage themselves. They would have saved more money because basically you can just lose so much money by getting 
stuck in the build. You know, if you haven't got the plasterers booked in at the right time for the electricians to come in and suddenly the plasterers don't have any loyalty to you because you're just a, a one-off job, your whole project managing program falls out of line and it can take a hell of a lot longer and end up costing more money than if you had just got a good building company in to run the whole thing for you. And I think that's such a good point. We were lucky enough when we did the loft to have a really good builder who basically project managed it for us. And it was actually really interesting to see how he was constantly, you know, five steps ahead. So at the time, my husband was working not at home. And I remember he would come back some days and say, well, nothing's happened. And I'd be like, well, no, well, actually, there was a two hour meeting about where the sockets were going to go or getting the wood in place so that the plumbing can go in. So it doesn't look like much has happened. It was really interesting for me to observe that, because if you're not a professional project manager or you haven't done a big project before, you have no idea of the sort of unseen stuff that goes on and the project manager who's thinking, well, I've got three days to do this and then I know I can get the electrician in followed by the plumber or whichever order it is. So I think project managing is is much, much harder than to come back to the beginning, making them a cup of tea and, uh, you know, seeing that they're working. Yeah, yeah. I think people don't realise how hard it is to project manage a build very successfully. It can seem seamless when you've got a great project manager and it can be an absolute nightmare if it's not project managed well. And, you know, all you have to do is have one thing that hasn't been ordered in time. So the plumber turns up to do something and you haven't ordered the bits for him and he has to go away and he says, well, I can't come back for another week or two. And so suddenly everyone else has to be rearranged. You know, especially on larger builds, project managing is so key. When you're doing smaller builds and you have two or three builders on site, hopefully every day, hopefully they've just committed to your project until it's finished, then the project managing is there. It's important because they are project managing it, but it's a whole lot easier. So you're committed to your budget. You've got your architect in place. You're committed to getting a builder in, a firm, to project manage your build. What are your sort of headline tips for finding a good builder? First of all, obviously get three or four quotes. Don't go mental and try and get seven or eight quotes because you're just wasting a lot of people's time. Try and get some recommended people to get quotes from, whether that's looking at their reviews online, but hopefully you're going to be able to go to some friends or some colleagues you know or some people who work in the industry and trying to get some recommendations. Then when the quotes come in, I feel like, How that process of quoting is done gives you a great insight into how organized the person is, the company is, or whatever it is. So if the quote comes back and it's a one A4 sheet of paper with a brief description, maybe even saying to build your extension just like the plans and then a price at the bottom, to me, that leaves you really wide open to a lot of problems in the future. You know, what happens when things change? You don't know how much they've priced for the doors. So if you decide to go for a different type of door, then they've got you by the short curlies in a way because they can tell you what they like about what they had allowed for for the doors, you know. So we always did fully broken down quotes. Every single line item of a build had a separate line with a separate price. And to me, that 
helped me understand what I would be building for our clients, but it also helped the process. And then we had told them the system of the build. So we would do valuation-based invoicing. So we would do a month's worth of work. We didn't ask for a deposit. This is the way larger building firms should work. You do a month's worth of work, then you look at the quotes and you value all the work you've done. So you put a percentage next to the quote. And that's why a fully broken down quote is really, really important. The second thing is to understand their process of what I call variations, but you know they might call extras or whatever. So when things come up during the job, what is the process of getting that priced and agreed so that you don't have some horrible, confusing, confrontational chat at the end of the job with them presenting you a bill and you going, I didn't know about all these costs. So variations or extras or whatever they want to call them need to be priced up and agreed as you go along and spreadsheeted. If you're doing a big build and your builders don't know how to give you a good spreadsheet of all the costs, then for me, that's a bit of a red flag to how is the process actually going to go. I think that's completely fascinating and brings back sort of slightly hideous memories of a situation we had with a builder who was exactly that. It was a bit of an A4 back of the envelope. This is what it'll cost to retile your hall. And so the hall was retiled and it was all going fine. And then um, none of the doors would open. And that was because obviously the tiles had brought the height of the floor up higher so we said to him, you know, what what do we do about this? And he was like, oh, well, I'm going to have to take all the doors off and I'm going to have to plane them down so that your doors will open. And that's going to be £125 per door extra. And we absolutely hit the roof. We were like, well, surely you would quote because you know that's going to happen. He was like, no, no, that's an extra. And of course, we were stuck. You know, we're not skilled carpenters and door hangers. So we had to pay for it. And ever since then, I've been really sort of, maybe I micromanage asking the questions, but having been stung like that once, I don't want to get stung like that again. And I think you're absolutely right. I now will ask for a broken down quote line by line so that I can then say, actually, if this is coming in, that's a bit more expensive. Can we not do that? Or is there a way to make that cheaper? So that is such a fantastic tip. You would have been very justified in calling somebody in to ask how much they would price. But she couldn't get out of her house. Cut the doors, the doors off. <laughs> she was locked in. <laughs> I think what Tom has given us there is so brilliant. There's so much more that Tom could give us that's useful on working with sustainability or planning a big thing. I think maybe we'll bring Tom back again to do more. Yeah, I'd love to come back on the podcast if you can bear my much more sombre approach to things than your two hilarious giggling oh, versions we'll that you're up. Giggling. <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get you back on. We'll have some giggling in no uh, time. Yeah, and perhaps you can get some listeners' questions. I'd enjoy answering some listeners' questions. I sense a coup coming on. Any minute now. This is happy. This is no longer the great indoors. This is the great build with Tom. With Sophie and Kate will be just making the tea. I see how it's going. Yeah, that's fine by me as well. We've got a show to do. And now for our regular style surgery slot. Hello, I'm Lucy. And I'm Sabina. 
So we're uh, developing our garden. It's a small city garden. Front, uh, front garden, weirdly, and south-facing. And our builders have asked us what colour we want the walls painted. Yeah, there are lots of... They're sort of outside walls, which they're doing the render, basically. They can colour the render, which is very cool, but we don't know what colour. And we think green, dark green, but we actually have no idea. But do we go light? Do we go dark? Do we, we don't know. Do we grey or do we hate grey? Does everyone hate grey now? I don't know. The inner walls as well, because there are some ins- inner wall, you know, like the borders to the flower beds. And we're thinking maybe those are grey and the outside ones are green. Basically, we don't we don't have a clue. So can you tell us what colour should we paint our garden walls? <laughs> I got asked a really similar question the other day. It was quite interesting. A friend of mine called Kit, who is in Brighton, doing similar garden. It's got high walls surrounding the boundary of the city garden and then little low walls, which are going to be used for like, you know, vegetable beds and garden beds and things like that. And then there's some like built-in seating. Anyways, a lot of raw cements looking very grey and Kit wanted it to go like you know that classic dark grey charcoal black colour and her partner wanted pink plaster pink so she came over to me she goes help us choose which oh, way we like can we go. don't know what you're gonna say <laughs> this is not news well I thought it was quite interesting because the argument was you know Kit's argument was that the dark will kind of recede away and let the lovely green plants sing and come to the fore which we know to be true one of the reasons why I've painted my house that lovely lamp black is because you know the roses and the hydrangeas when they come out will just look glorious popping out from it but the fear was if they paint that all their boundary wall this dark color it'll bring the walls in and make the garden feel dark and pokey it's interesting, isn't it? Because I've got a very boring concrete box extension to uh, refer to the top of the show <laughs> on the back of my house. And that started off, we painted it cream because we thought it would be light. And actually now it's painted in railings. So another sort of soft, slightly off black. And it does look great with things growing up it. My neighbour, a few doors down, don't want to incriminate anyone, painted her fence all in black and uh, another neighbour who could see it said to me, oh, what have they done? It looks like Guantanamo Bay. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, as much as I think black feels in a way a very obvious choice because it is great with the green, I think some people might find it's not a great choice. Would you want to know what my solution was? For Kit in her garden. Well, I I mean, clearly pink. Look, she's on the edge of her seat. Oh, you're just assuming. So I suggested that they paint the exterior boundary walls, which are, you know, probably six foot high. Yeah. The plaster pink. Yeah. Sort of setting plaster type colour, which as a view out would feel light. But then the low beds in the dark off black which is where the greenery Ooh, come shows. Overall compromising. Well, not, not compromising, but you can have more than one colour paint in your uh, garden. Well, no, <laughs> but, but also, I mean, yeah, you make a really valid point because I think people just assume we must just have this or we must just have that. Yeah. So the one point I would make that black on a garden fence is perhaps great in an urban garden. You might not want to do it in the countryside. So be aware, I think, perhaps of your location. Pink. Are you saying that my black in my country? No, I think what's on a house I was particularly saying on garden fences. I think you've got oh, a more okay. urban garden. I think it might be more suitable. But then country gardens perhaps aren't so fenced in on the whole mm. anyway. So I think that can work. But I, I do think you can... Now I'm going to potentially upset you here. Ooh. I think you can go too far. So I had another friend who painted her... Is this one remaining nameless as well? Oh, Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, she's a very good friend of mine. Is she, she going to know you're talking about her? Uh, probably not. No. She painted her garden fence in your favourite cobalt blue. Oh, yes. That's a nice And it was an gardens. urban garden. Mm. And it kind of looked lovely. It's like that Marjorelle. Is it the Marjorelle the, Gardens the, yes. in Marrakesh? But, you know, she's in North London. Oh, okay. And it kind of didn't quite work. It, it was travel. too intense. It didn't travel. And I think we've done that thing, you know, you go on holiday to Greece and you think, oh, I'm going to paint all my garden walls turquoise mm. or bright white and I'll be, you know, drinking Retsina in a in a taverna in Greece, only you're not, you know, you're in a terrace garden in Neesden. Yeah. It's not the same thing. So I think while I'm completely in favour of bringing, as it were, inside paint colours outside I think you need to be aware of your surroundings you know are you urban are you country you're not necessarily oh, terribly sensible. so her cobalt blue didn't work she then however went over it in a black looked fabulous I think mm. the idea of pink which I have to say wouldn't have occurred for me for but garden walls is a great pink. color it's a brownie yeah, plaster pink brilliant. and I think you know again these are sort of exterior colors that you see on buildings anyway plaster pink and it loves chocolate green browns, blacks, greys, you know, they are all sorts of colours that we see within our environment. And, I and they look great. And again, you know, pink and green, dream team. Lovely. And I wonder also about that very sort of dirty yellow ochre, which Ooh. is a bit Tuscan, but actually loves green and is a warm colour. You mm. see, my problem is sometimes you use these sort of bright blues and, you know, when it's the middle of November and it's been raining for six yes. weeks straight, it just looks a bit, it looks even sadder. It does look You know, sadder. a summer colour in the rain it looks it looks can you sad. get away with your tuscan yellow in november well i wonder i think because it's a sunny color i think you can so mm. i would be tempted to say steer clear of the blues but yes i Go think warm. a plaster pink a warm ochre lovely black or versions of is lovely classic color because mm -hmm. we know it loves green so I think that might be really nice. Oh, you've made me want to get my paintbrush out. You, you made me want to paint my fence yellow now. <laughs> this is my yellow coming back in again. But it, 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 I think it's true that we don't tend to think about using paint in the garden. You know, we very often, we have a concrete wall or a wooden fence and the assumption is, you mm. know, oh, it's, it's outside, it must be natural. And actually, A, nothing wrong with taking paint outside and B, maybe a really nice way, particularly in a small garden where you might have a very... Close link you, between gonna, inside and outside. You're going to link the I'm going to link. Oh, she's going to link. link. But do you know what I'm going to say? What? I'm getting into old design crime territory, and I've said this before. It really upsets me when people have those big grey oh, paving flagstones on their that kitchen. Was in like and then they one. But then they put them in the garden oh, because right. they think that's the link. Yeah. Don't do the link with the flooring because it's obvious you're outside, but create a colour link. Okay. So, you know, bring whatever room faces onto your garden. If you're doing it in ochre yellow, bring some of that colour inside. Or Nice. So I think that would work. So she can have any colour she wants as long as it's not uh, blue or grey or white. Oh, grey's all right. Or... Oh. Yeah. Well, like we talked about graphite grey. Concrete grey is really nice in a garden. That concrete colour. Hi, my work here is done. So, <laughs> so grey's okay. <laughs> My work is done. So, Lucy, I think the point is have a look at your inside colour palettes and take a bit of it outside. Big yes to soft pinks, big yes to warm yellows, big yes to blacks slash dark greys. Lucy, you've been told. <laughs> Do you keep your style surgery questions coming? Send us an email and better still, a voice note to thegreatindoorspod at gmail.com. There will be... 
All right, oh, Lucy. Lucy. Lucy's off to send her uh, voice notes. <laughs> <laughs> Next I'll send you, it won't just be Lucy, it'll be Lucy the dog. <laughs> there will be links and pics to the things we've talked about today over on the blogs on madaboutthehouse.com and sophierobinson.co.uk. And a big thank you to Flossie Wossie, who left us a lovely review on Apple Podcasts. She says... I'm more of a true crime podcast listener and I wasn't sure how listening to a podcast on something so visual would work, but I am so impressed with the way that Kate and Sophie articulate designs. Sophie's positivity and her way of not taking things too seriously, together with Kate's wit and both of their experience and tips, leaves me feeling inspired and energised. Thank you both for a great listen. Thank you, Flossie Wossie. I mean, all I heard is that she's saying that I'm not witty. I can be witty. Maybe what she was saying was you're a bit grumpy. Anyway, write a review on Apple Podcasts if you think I'm witty too. While Sophie summons her in a, I don't know, Dorothy Parker. Actually, I want to be Dorothy Parker. <laughs> Let's go with Oscar Wilde. <laughs> Let me say thank you so much to our sponsor, Geberit, Europe's leading bathroom manufacturer, to our producer, Kate Taylor of Feast Collective, and to you, our lovely, witty listeners. And we'll see you in the great indoors. 